Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and I'm a certified holistic health and nutrition coach. And we're broadcasting live today from Malibu, California. Today, uh, we're going to be talking to Shauna Kemp. Uh, She's an occupational therapist that has been working with autistic children for over 10 years. And she worked in the Orange County School District, LA Unified School District. And we're going to be talking about how to detect and treat autism and also about some preconception planning concerns and things that you should be doing during your pregnancy to prevent autism in the first place. And this is a a big issue today. Today there is one in 54 children, uh, or one in 54 males, uh, uh, more accurately, as of March 2013. These are the latest statistics. And one in 54 male children has autism. And this is significant because 80% of children who have autism are, in fact, males. It's less females get autism. And um, it's just, it's, it's frightening. And so we need to start educating people and get the word out there about why this is happening and what you can do about it. And this is especially poignant for me because my child uh, was diagnosed with a mild form of autism uh, a few months ago. And luckily for me, I've been researching autism and reading all kinds of articles about it for years. So I already knew what to do. So I can't imagine being a new mother and having that diagnosis and then having starting from nowhere and having no clue what to do, where to turn, where to get reliable information. So that's why I wanted to do this show today. So please go check out my website, livetoone110.com. I started the site because I wanted to educate everyone about the beauty of paleo nutrition. And my version is called the Modern Paleo Diet the importance of detoxing from heavy metals and industrial chemicals that I believe are the major underlying cause of disease today, and how to treat your health conditions naturally without medication. And my goal with LiveTo110.com is to help you prevent disease and live a long, long, healthy life, hopefully to 110. But if you like what you hear today and the show, please give the Live to 110 podcast a nice review and rating in iTunes. This is going to help people around the world to find the show easier and get my word out on health, and I would appreciate it so much. Now, our guest today, uh, her name is Shauna Kemp. Um, She's uh, spent a lot of time working with autistic children, and I thought she had a particularly good um, insight uh, that she could contribute to this show because she's worked with so many children with autism and and is going to be able to tell you exactly what to look for and trying to figure out if your child is autistic. And then we're going to go over all the latest research and, um, you know, today about autism and so that you can find out what exactly is it that you need to do if your child does get this diagnosis because there is hope. You can turn it around. Um, but there is a spectrum. There's an uh, called autism spectrum disorders, and your child can be very, very functional, um, but they can also be extremely um, uh, on the other end of the spectrum where they uh, you know, almost need to be hospitalized because they're they're just they just cannot function in society. But we're going to tell you all about how to um, all about how to treat your child and detect autism. So, Shauna, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank uh, you so much. You know, you are my friend. I just want to let everyone know I've known you for over ten years, and. Um, I, this is great that you just happen to be very knowledgeable on this subject. So thank you for being on the show. Sure. Um, 
and I, actually I've been working for 15 years. I would say 13 years of that has been devoted to being in the pediatric population, and it's been interesting seeing the um, the ratio, the prevalence of children with autism being identified and diagnosed and treated. Um, it's, it is alarming, and um, hopefully I can provide some insight from my my perception, my experience, and help um, others out there with their own children with those difficulties. And, in fact, I do have a nephew as well who um, is on the, the autism spectrum. He's, let's see, I think he's 9 or 10 years old now, and so I've seen um, a tremendous change in him since his parents had him identified and made, you know, dietary changes and implemented um, a variety of therapy services to help him. So there, there's um, definitely a lot of things going on out there to help those with them, their children identified with this disorder. Yeah, and I really just want to thank you for really tr- trying to be like on my case with my child because you kept telling me, oh, she's got some little funny behaviors there or she's walking on her tiptoes and doing little things. And I was like, no, nah, she's fine. And I just, I didn't get it or I just didn't want to maybe take it in, so to speak, because my daughter hit all her milestones early. You know, she was totally normal. Um, until she started, you know, a little bit after she started getting her vaccinations. And so I thought, I just was kind of fooled because I thought, well, no, she's fine. She started talking at nine months and she started, um, had 50 words by the time she was uh, 12 months old. Like she was totally normal and she was above average. And then all of a sudden the, the progress just stopped. So, and I, I thank you for trying to continue to be on me and point it out to me that, you know, she's not progressing normally. Because it takes a while for a parent for it to sink in. You know, parents are in denial. They don't want to think something's wrong with their child. And especially if you don't um, have other children or if you're not around other parents with children similar in age, it's hard to make that comparison. So that's why I'm a big, big believer in putting your child in some sort of program early on, you know, daycare, even, you know, a couple hours a day, a couple times a week, so they can get that exposure. That's really inherently important for their social-emotional development, and it is a way for you as a parent, number one, to kind of compare your child where they fall on that bell curve with other children, and then you can identify them early on if they're you know, there are any speech delays, if their behaviors are out of the ordinary compared to other children. So, um, yeah, it's important. Yeah, I know. It's hard because, you know, because, you know, you're always hearing that children develop at different rates. So when they're they're that young, they're like 18 months or two years old, and you're, they're playing with other children. I had my daughter at play dates. And you're thinking, oh, well, my child is just taking longer to develop. You know, even though she hadn't progressed at all in in a year, you know, when she was two years old, she really, from one to two years, she hadn't made any progress at all in her language. But but it just takes so long to sink in. Even when you're comparing your kid to other children, you think, oh, well, that children is just ahead. The other that other kid's just ahead, or my daughter's just going to take a little bit longer to develop. So it's it makes it tricky 
to take that first step to go in to seek help. And then you don't know where to get help. <laughs> so that's what we're yeah. going to talk about. So you graduated from USC as an occupational therapist, and um, you have a lot of experience working with children with autism and, and actually diagnosing them to determine if they qualify for services from when you worked in Orange County. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, okay, well, let me just clarify. We, we, as, you know, we're not the ones who come up with the diagnosis, the special education eligibility, um, mm-hmm. but after many years, I mean, it's I could tell within, you know, 10, 15 seconds if someone was on the spectrum based on their behaviors and um, based on their mannerisms and what their parents told me. Um, and I actually started out working um, in Los Angeles Unified School District and um, just the prevalence was going up and up. It became a majority of my caseload. Um, and while working in LA Unified, we um, had clinics there um, to work with children with, um, you know, sensory processing and modulation difficulties. And um, it just was kind of par for the course. It, it just went hand in hand. Um, a lot of these children were... Um, having difficulties functioning in the school setting, which was, you know, the population I worked with. And so I, over the years, had more and more and more um, exposure and opportunity to work with these type of children. Um, And I took a lot of courses as I started working with these children to be able to better serve them, Um, you know, utilizing things like the Wilbarger Protocol. I, um, and and certified in the sensory integration and praxis test, which is a whole other subject. Um, and in the time that I worked with them, I, you know, saw that there was just a variety of things that would come up in terms of what was going to what was going to work for one child versus an, another. But there was definitely some common things, some some things that were across the board going to be beneficial to any of the children identified as being on the spectrum. Um, so, Yeah, you know. it's, really, it's weird. I've known you for so long. I didn't know you were taking all these courses, and I, I just uh, I love learning all these new things about you. Well, so, uh, and it's required, you know, it's just for in our profession, like, well, unlike teachers, for our licensing, just like nurses and physical therapists, we ha- are required to take a certain number of continuing education units every year. And wow. it just made sense early on in my career, being that I was having all this exposure to these type of um, children, that I would, you know, be taking courses and things that would be beneficial to them. So otherwise, I'm not going to be a good clinician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so how did you get into working with children with autism? What made you want to work with this population? It wasn't so much I wanted to. It just, it just happened. Um, I kind of fell into working in special education. I originally, when I went to school, I started out working in mental health. Um, you know, outpatient, partial hospitalization, and then an opportunity came up to come to go work in the school systems and. Um, initially it was like, oh, you know, the work days and all the holidays and all that. So it just kind of fell into my lap, and I just found that it was it was a, a good match for me in terms of um, 
my abilities and what I like to do. Um, and I saw an impact and I'm really big on early intervention, you know, and so I thought, where would I best be able to um, help other people? And early intervention was what I found in working in the schools with parents and educating them. What then? You can watch whatever you want. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, oh, hey, it's okay. I have a child too. <laughs> a child, the background. Um, <laughs> yeah, it just kind of fell into my lap. And then what was interesting was when my, just like when I started noticing um, difficulties your daughter was having, um, I think I was working for, I think Orange County at the time when, um, which was my second. Uh, school-based pediatric job. My nephew was about the same age as your daughter, and I think we were at Disneyland or something, and I noticed a lot of uh, similar behaviors to the children I worked with, and I thought, wow, um, they, they just weren't aware, just like you weren't. And I remember my sister in law asked me the question, do you think my child has autism? And and I was like, well, if you're asking me that, then there's a good chance that your child might have it, but I'm not the one to diagnose it. And, you know, I directed them to, you know, some resources, some websites, some doctors and some things so they could start exploring that themselves, you know, because um, that's really what it boils down to. Parents have to be the biggest advocate for their child, you know, ultimately. And, you know, there's just a plethora of um, resources out there. So there's really, there, I don't know, there's just no getting around it. They, if, if they are in any way concerned or considering that their child might have any sort of um, delay or disability, then they they can obviously go to a variety of resources that are available on the web, you know. Yeah, and I, I can't express that enough. It, 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 parents out there, if you suspect at all, you just get an inkling, a notion, some intuition in your mind that maybe your child isn't developing normally, don't waste one more day. Because I wasted about a year that my child could have been getting the help that she needs to snap, you know, snap out of this, the, uh, snap out of autism. And uh, um, not that you snap out of it. It takes a lot of years to, you know, the right diet and the right environment and special education, preschool and whatnot, speech therapy and, you know, whatever your child your problem has uh, or problem your child has. But don't waste another day. Go get your child some help. Go get find someone uh, to diagnose them. Go to a speech therapist. Go to anyone, any kind of resource you can find on the web, your local school district. There's tons of services out there that are free. Um, most cities, like, they're, you know, you can go. Can you tell them about that, the resources in their cities um, that they can oh, go yeah. to? They are under three. They can um, go to, well, like, when I worked in Orange County, it was the Regional Center of Orange County. Um, Los Angeles has their own regional center, um, and they uh, will provide you support and evaluations from birth to three. 
And then once they, when they turn three, it becomes the local school district's responsibility. Um, so if they haven't already been evaluated, like which was the case of your daughter, if um, they're close to three, like you know, two years, ten months, two years, eleven months, the school district will start the process and evaluate them so that when they turn three, they can have the you know the supports in place to help them in the educational setting. Um, it's it's really really easy and it's important for parents to know their rights too in terms of that once they turn three because that's really the area where I have the most experiences the 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 three to twenty two population when I worked in special education directly and um, you know they can basically just go to their local um, school probably go to the district office and tell them that you have concerns with your child and if you go in with, um, you know, any documentation from your, you know, primary physician for your child um, stating, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever the issues are, that will certainly help. And then the school district has a a specific amount of time that they have to respond to your request. Um, And your request should be, you know, you want to have your child evaluated. You want... um, a speech therapy evaluation and occupational therapy evaluation. You can have an adaptive physical education evaluation because oftentimes children on the spectrum have, um, you know, gross motor coordination difficulties. And um, obviously the school psychologist, which is, you know, the most important piece because they're, the, they're going to be the ones that are going to um, be doing specific um, evaluation tools in order to determine if your child has, you know, a special education eligibility. Um, and yeah, then what, I, think you know, it's key, I think it's key to point out that all this is free. So even if yeah. you don't have resources, just start the process as soon as you can because it takes a few months to get ramped up to where you start getting services. And it's totally yeah. free. I almost feel bad for the... Uh, the the school districts because they're probably getting so overloaded and it's costing so much money because so many children are affected with uh, with autism spectrum disorders. Yes, they, and and I mean definitely when I worked for LA Unified and Orange County where it is more contentious that's the word we use on the other end not as the parent but as the provider of services. And that's something that's important to bring up, too, that, you know, they are overwhelmed. So, and being, like I said earlier, that the parent is their child's biggest advocate, they also need to take accountability. They, more importantly than the school district. The school district is going to provide services, but like I've told every parent I've ever worked with, you know, they are, they are like 75% of the equation for their child's success, you know, in the educational setting and in life. The school district is about 25% of that because that's the amount of time they spend, you know, a, you know, away from home in the school in the school setting. So um, yes, they should go, and, and yes, these services are free. But more importantly, the parents need to take an accountability and follow through on their end on what they need to be doing. You know, it, because if you're not if you're not um, having the same expectations for your child at home as you are for them in the school setting, that that generalization is not going to occur, you know. And obviously it takes a little bit longer at home, especially like 
if your child is, you haven't, you know, been able to deal with their behaviors or their communication difficulties or their sensory issues or their sensory motor issues at home, um, and, and then they go into the school setting and all of a sudden you have all these expectations of them, um, over time you're going to want to see that at home, and that's going to take more work on the parents' part too. It, it is difficult, um, but it, it's your child. So yeah. it's your most valuable asset. So, um, But I, I know that, that that's a lot of people are not aware of that, that there are services and things available to them that are free, um, and they should take advantage of it. Um, but, again, there's only so much the school or the private therapist, whoever you see, there's only so much they can do. It's really incumbent upon the parents to also implement those things for them for their child in the home environment. Yeah, you I think know? one of the biggest things is uh like nixing the media. No T V, no iPad, no iPhone, you know, and all that stuff. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about how that interferes in their development? Well, um I would say use media because it's it's already there and so many children are exposed to it at such an early age. Um use it as a reinforcer because because most of these type of children are so visual, that's why it's so popular with them. And the way it's been described to me by um, higher-functioning Asperger um, adults, teenagers, they, they see things in pixels. So it's very reinforcing for them to have access to that media. But you want to use it as a reinforcer, not as a replacement, you know, to because – of course, most of them would prefer to not have to engage and and you know because of the way their minds work they they um respond so much better to media um uh, but I know in the case of like my my nephew, unfortunately, while they've done all the other things you know the gluten casein free diet, the removing the metals, the intensive in home behavioral therapy and, you know, therapy at school, occupational therapy, you know, and and also having a one-on-one so he's fully included, they have not removed the media. And that is his default. He, of course, that's what he prefers. And so um, I I feel like it, it does interfere because he would he would do that versus being physically active, which is, you know, super, super important for any child's development. And that's the one thing where I'm like, ugh. You've done this right, this right, this right, and this right, but you continue to allow an unlimited amount of access to TV and iPads and video games and all of that. And that's not even in, you know, research that's been done. That's not healthy for just our typically developing children. I don't even, I haven't owned TV in three and a half years. And, you know, just because I'm doing this right now and I need to occupy my child who's five and a half, Yes, I let him watch something on the com- on the other computer, but I'm completely controlling. It's not unlimited access, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I, um, I I think that parents and providers need to remember that um, modern technology and media that's it's a powerful tool, but it still needs to be controlled. Yeah, um, even if you're you, normally functioning. Yeah, and it, and and ter- like the way um, a behavior specialist would call, it, it's an A plus reinforcer. 
you know, um, modern, you know, having the iPads, and they use it a lot. Um, it's a great tool, not just even in that population and, you know, other populations too, because um, there's so many different applications, and you can, um, in a controlled environment, you know, really start doing some good data collection if you're working on specific things with a child, you know, whether it's their expressive or receptive um, communication skills, expressive being what you are able to, you know, articulate or communicate in terms of your wants and needs, which is always, always more difficult for someone on the spectrum versus their receptive communication, which is what they understand. You know, so they can fall, they can usually understand more than they're able to communicate. Um, so a lot of the applications out there, and I can't even keep up because there's so much technology even for me to keep up with, but my rule of thumb is I just like to keep it, when I when I work with children and when I'm talking with parents, I try to keep it really practical and simple and, and keep in mind that not everyone has access to all these fancy you know, things out there and have them just use, you know, common sense and, and use things in their environment that they that can help their child in terms of their overall development. Yeah. Well, can you explain to listeners exactly what autism is? Because uh, well, we're going to start a little bit. Let's just start from yeah, the beginning. Let's just start a baseline. What exactly is it? Autism is a neurobehavioral disorder. It, it has an unknown etiology. It causes social social skill deficits. It can cause cognitive impairment, otherwise some people know as mental retardation, um, severe um, communica- communication problems, like I indicated earlier, whether it be receptive or expressive. It's always both. Um, and in some children, they have no ability to um, expressively communicate themselves. Um, and like you said earlier, Autism is more prevalent in boys than it is in girls, about 80%. It's still unclear why. It's, it's, it's complicated. They, they, and also they're finding that more um, children in, you know, in like urban dwellings and cities have it than children in rural settings. So then you have to take into consideration, well, what's going on, right, environmentally that is causing this increased prevalence. Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely, definitely, definitely say that has something to do with it. And not just, I'm, you know, I see it in, in other um, populations um, in terms of the impact of environmental toxins on um, the exacerbation of other ailments and, and impairments. Yeah, I think one it's safe to say that one of the reasons I think that um you know more boys are affected is because of all the estrogenic hormone disrupting chemicals we have in our environment like BPA, bisphenol A, parabens and phthalates that women are exposed to while they're pregnant. And I think one of the best things you can do to prevent autism spectrum disorders is simple preconception planning because recent studies have shown that the mother, they have to avoid hormone-disrupting chemicals that I just mentioned mentioned while they're mm-hmm. pregnant. And these, these chemicals are directly linked to autism, ADHD, and so many other diseases and uh, birth defects, developmental well, disorders, et cetera. It's, it's, it's actually, to me, like, it's just even on a whole, it's, it's, it's not just advice that should be part of anyone who's considering getting pregnant, but just on a global scale, 
these things mm-hmm. are bad for everybody. Yes, and yes. It's it's just showing up more and more now in you know this particular disorder. So at no point is it good to have that that exposure to anything because it will also show up later on in life. Because you know, I um I switched um, populations exclusively about a year ago. You know, which is a whole other story. But in working with the geriatric population, you know, more and more people seem to be showing signs of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's earlier on in their life. And you look at their historically what they did for a living, where they lived, and it's in, and I'm like, huh, there's definitely a correlation there too. You know, so um, and it, you know, I used to poo-poo all of this about eating organic and, you know, oh, well, I just need to build up my body's immunity. And it's, no, it's not healthy for anyone. And, um, you know, even people don't even think about how toxic their homes are in terms of the cleaners they use. They are completely being fooled. You know, they have no idea that just because something smells good and, and looks clean, it's actually more toxic the environment they're creating. Yes, yeah, it's more so so Any 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 chemical, laundry detergent, perfume, beauty product, body product that has the word fragrance on it is full of phthalates, and these are endocrine disrupting chemicals, and we're slathering it on us every day, breathing it in. It's just it's a true emergency in our world today, and it contributes to our body's toxic burden. Right, it's and then it shows up. So the impact. For you personally, as your child, you know, was diagnosed with autism, and it impacts everyone differently, you know. And it's just it, to me, it's like it's just a huge wake up call on a global scale. It's all interrelated with, you know, permaculture and 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 everything else. So, um, hopefully, if nothing else, even if it's someone who's listening to this doesn't have know someone, which most people I think do in this day and age, know someone personally or have someone in their family with this diagnosis, they can think of other um, ailments, you know, someone with Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or whatever that is likely impacted because of their exposure to environmental toxins. And it's going to, it will certainly impact you and I as well if we're not, you know, really conscientious about, you know, what what we put in our bodies, number one, and um, the environments we live in and our exposure to to the various environmental toxins. Yeah, and it makes me really sad because I've, since I was even a preteen, I've been slathering my body with all kinds of lotions and perfumes and face lotions and makeup and all this stuff just every single day thinking that I was taking care of my body. And what I was really doing was just filling my body with phthalates and parabens. They're in every single beauty product you buy at your local drugstore or Target, Sam's Club, or any you know membership club like that. And uh, I, I, I have a feeling it definitely contributed to my daughter's autism because I had spent my entire life, you know, stuffing these chemicals into my body, onto my body, and uh, slathering them on me. And um, you know, I was doing it through my pregnancy too. Until at one point during my pregnancy, when I started studying more about natural beauty products and natural health and a healthier diet. That's when it finally clicked for me, and I switched to all natural products and all natural cleaners, 
and whatnot, but unfortunately it was too late. So that may have been a contributor in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's just talk a little bit about, you know, it's not as simple as your child just having or not having autism. It's not a, it's not a black or white thing. Can you explain to the listeners exactly what the autism spectrum is? Um, well, the, the autism spectrum actually is uh, like a, like it says, a spectrum. There are five disorders in the DSM um, five that are listed under that, um, and there there is um, PDD, which is pervasive developmental disorder. Um, and they also say NOS, which is not otherwise specified. There is autism. There is Asperger's. Um, high functioning autism. Yes, high functioning. Um, what else is there? Um, There's the ADHD. Yes, Rett syndrome. Um, and according to the National Institute of Mental Health, it's just basically a group of developmental brain disorders. Um, and uh, there's also the childhood dis- disintegrative disorder. So the spectrum basically call it just covers all of those types of neurological brain disorders. And there is definitely similarities between each one of them. And to me, it doesn't really matter which label you get. Um, and I know some people get stuck on, you know, having a label, and that's why I, in my personal experience, my parents have not wanted to have go in and get a diagnosis because they don't want their child to be labeled. But guess what? It's just like being labeled with um, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. You know, you need once you know what you have or your child has, then you can follow a more specific protocol on what you can do to reverse or, you know, minimize the impact of having a, a specific, you know, neurobiological, you know, disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, the, yeah, autism is just one of many developmental problems that's plaguing our children. You know, we have a lot more control than we think when it comes to preventing these conditions and that we're going to be covering over the course of the show. And it's really frightening. Autism rates have gone from 1 in 150, and that was just maybe 5 or 10 years ago. I'm not sure exactly when. Then it went from 1 in 100. Then it went to 1 in 88. Now rates, as of March 2013, are 1 in 54 males. And I think it's 1 in 67 children overall. And what are the rates going to be in 20 years? It's very scary. Uh, What do you think, Shauna, is causing the skyrocketing turn of autism? Um, well, like I said earlier, I definitely think um, the environmental factors like heavy metals and the environmental chemicals are contributing to autism, or they're def- they're exacerbating the symptoms. Um, and, you know, you had mentioned some of the things earlier, but, you know, solvents, diesel exhaust, PCBs, phthalates, phenols, you know, that are used in plastic products, pesticides, you know, the the flame retardants used in bedding, alcohol, smoking, illicit drugs, and the toxins and vaccines, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, the household cleaners that we use um, by pregnant women, you know, the things they're using, they're, 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 in, they're in exposing their, their unborn child to those things. Um, so that, to me, is one of the, the, 
the the most prevalent contributions to why we're seeing um, such an increase. No, it's it's hard to avoid all those things. It's like you you almost have to be on a detox program. You know what I advise people before they get pregnant to detox spend a couple years on a detox program. I prefer nutritional balance in science, which you're on. I'm on it. My kid's on it. You know, I'm just trying to get everyone I can on it because it's such a wonderful detox program. It's very thorough. And, um, you know, people that were just un- unwittingly, you know, spraying our kids, you know, when we're cleaning our houses with the, all these Windex and all these typical chemicals in our house, we're spraying our entire environment or covering it with toxic chemicals that contributes to our already toxic load. And, Autism is clearly linked to environmental factors. You know, people love to hypothesize that autism is just recognized and diagnosed more, but you just you don't have numbers increased like this unless it's due to the environment. And I'm hoping this show serves to wake people up to the devastating nature of toxins in our environment and our diet. And one of the main reasons I, I wanted to do this show is to get people ta- taking a close look at their child and to stop making excuses for them and just go seek evaluation and treatment as, as soon as possible. And you know, you know, I think we already discussed that a little bit a little bit earlier. But you know, say your your child has speech delays or other noticeable delays. Now, what are the signs one should look for in their child? Like, what are the telltale signs of autism? Um, if you see um, all of a sudden a, a drastic reduction in their verbal skills, if there is, um, if they've had less eye contact, if you're seeing more behavioral outbursts, if they're fussier. Um, or just not, you're not able to console them. Um, if I, a lot of children on the spectrum have some, sort, and this is the area where I really am versed in um, some sort of sensory aversion, you know, whether it be auditory, tactile is a big one, they don't want to be touched or they avoid certain textures or they're a very, very picky eater. Um, and you know, if you notice that they, when you compare them, if you can, to other children their age, if you're noticing that they're not um, on, on the, they're socially and emotionally not on the same plane as that, as the other children, um, those to me are the biggest, biggest signs. You know, it's so easy to point out. So if you see them, if, the problem is a lot of people, um, who early on are in denial and they maybe unconsciously they know something is going on with their child and it's like they almost without realizing it start withdrawing from society and being in social situations because they you know if you start seeing that that's a pretty you know canceling plans or um avoiding going out and you know to places that you normally would with your child the park the beach the mall, whatever, friends have because you know that your child's, you know, going to be difficult. Those yeah, are I stopped going I stopped going to lunches with friends because I knew it was just gonna be impossible. Like she just couldn't sit still in a in a restaurant for any length of time. Right. Yeah, and another thing I also think is 
uh, if your child isn't playing with other kids. Like a lot of times I take my daughter to the park or and she just wouldn't engage with other children. Right. Yeah, that that's why I'm I've always you know, as soon as it's feasible you want it's like any other living creature you want you need to expose them early on to other <laughs> living creatures. And that mm-hmm. is gonna be your indicator right there. Where is my child at compared to them? And the first inkling that you have that something, I mean, your intuition is going to tell you. All, yeah. you know, medical advice, your intuition is going to tell you. And with that, of course, you want to follow the standards. You want to go to your pediatrician, and then you want to get a referral. And the problem is there are um, the, some pediatricians that I've been around are, you know, are more old-fashioned and, you know, don't, you know, don't believe in diagnosing a child with autism or they don't think that vaccines have anything to do with it. Even my own child's pediatrician, to this day, they're trying to push me to vaccinate my child. Um, so if, if when you go to your pediatrician with questions and you don't feel like you're either they're, they're well-versed or they are, you know, competent enough to... Um, give you the proper diagnosis or the support you need, then you go and get a second opinion. No, you know? and it's hard with the pediatrician because my pediatrician, she's one of the, she's amazing. She went to Stanford and she went to UCLA Medical School. She's the best and the brightest, but they don't spend that much time with your kids. And she didn't catch it, you know, she with my daughter. But I would, because uh, she was, it's hard because like. I was thrown by the fact that my daughter spoke early at nine months, and I and I just had it in my head. And my daughter is ahead. My daughter's ahead of other children when she was, in fact, delayed a year later. So it, it really took a long time for it to dawn on me that my child did not display the usual signs because she was not severely impaired. And I, even me, I've been reading about autism and health and toxins and it's uh, autism's causes for years. And I thought I knew the signs, but what I didn't really pay attention to were the very subtle signs that my daughter exhibited. And there's always this bit of denial in the form of my child's fine. She's going to be fine. She's so it's just, it's difficult. You know, so you, you ultimately have to be your child's biggest advocate, like you said. Yeah. So, and then, you know, I think like you said, and we haven't talked about it yet, but you started to notice a difference after you started getting your getting your daughter vaccinated. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. what I hear from, and this is just my personal experience, you know, and I'm, there's, I'm, there's a lot of research to support it, but um, a lot of my personal experience with parents and even friends um, who have vaccinated their children, it was very, it was within months after that that they started noticing changes in their children. Yeah. And for my daughter, a lot of people say, oh, well, there's all kinds of other things that cause autism. How can you, how do you know it's the vaccines? With my daughter, I mean, there was not one chemical in my house. I did not do any weird cleaning with any toxic chemicals. Even the laundry detergent was clean. I did not put chemicals on my face anymore. I used all natural products. Um, I, I, My daughter only ate organic food that I made. Like she was breastfed for six months. She wouldn't do it after that. But I, everything was in place. There was no chemical exposures anywhere. 
Um, though you can get them inadvertently, like lead with dirt on the ground if you're walking around um, with shoes in your house or whatnot. There's little things that can be happening, but the only conceivable thing I could come up with was the vaccines. Those were the only toxic things that were injected into her body that could possibly be causing this. There just weren't other things that I could, I, I still have I've racked my brain. There's nothing else I can think of. Right. Um, but, you know, of course, it's uh, autism is not multifactorial. I think vaccines just contribute to the problem. And um, in another, you know, vaccines are a huge controversy in autism. And many people think they play a role, even though most don't. But I personally think that people are crazy to overlook this very obvious source of toxins in our kids. And, you know, I had read all the books, I read all the mainstream books. And um, after reading them, I had this false sense of security about vaccines because they don't, you know, they pretty much advocate doing vaccines. They talk a little bit about the death rates and whatnot. And you might have some side effects after you get them. And, you know, my pediatrician wasn't really pushing them, but she wasn't really warning me about the dangers of them either. And, um, you know, this is the norm, I think, but usually the doctor is outright insisting on vaccines like yours was. And, mm-hmm. and of course, this is 50% of a pediatrician's income. So they're not exactly unbiased. You know, of course, they're going to be pushing them, you know, for the most part, because that's that's their business. You know, medicine is a business and people do have to make their living and there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to consider this when your pediatrician's, you know, trying to get you to do vaccines. And, you know, all the books I read uh, were, that were about vaccines were published by big publishers, and these big publishers are not going to publish something against vaccines. It would be business suicide. You know, if you'll notice, all the books against vaccines are not published by big publishers like Random House. They're all small, independent publishers. And these large publishers, publishers, they want people to buy their books. The mainstream believes wholeheartedly in vaccines. So if they push a book against vaccines, it's going to deter sales of the book or even their credibility as a publisher. So why would they do something stupid like that? And, you know, and I read all these books by Dr. Sears and Dr. Oz and felt that I was fully informed on the risks of vaccines and proceeded with confidence in vaccinating my child. And I think this happens to millions of mothers. And uh, you can also, last week we did a, um, a really good podcast with April Renee about, you know, educating before you vaccinate. She's been studying vaccines and their harmful effects for 20 years. And unfortunately, her daughter had severe autism and then and died for after she got Guillain-Barre syndrome and uh, she got encephalitis and uh, her child died. And she absolutely has connected it to vaccines. So luckily, I woke up to the dangers of vaccines and stopped vaccinating my child at 18 months. And voila, at two years old, my daughter started progressing again. Um, so, you know, vaccines, they can cause brain inflammation. So it takes a while for that inflammation to go down. And so at two years old, she started progressing again. So I, I'm sure my child would be faring much worse had I continued with the vaccines and injecting the aluminum and mercury and the, and the thimerosal, the preservatives in the vaccines. Okay, but I'm done with my rant. Um, Shauna, what role do you think that vaccines play in autism? Well, like you, you know, I don't think a lot of people are aware, you know, especially certain socioeconomic groups are aware that what what's even in a vaccine. They're just being told this is what your child needs and 
it's going to prevent X, Y, and Z, measles, mumps, rubella, um, polio, chicken pox, which you're going to get anyway, which, so it's, it's stupid, you know, <laughs> that would not kill you. Yeah, and that something things that really we're not seeing anymore are something that your child's likely going to get anyway. So why would you take a vaccine? And you know, even I wasn't aware of this, you know, um, early on in my career about what the big hoopla was with vaccines and what was in it. You know, like you said, the thimerosal, which is fifty percent mercury, and mercury is a known neurotoxin, and it's the most poisonous substance in the humans. Why the hell would it be in a vaccine? And they still put it in the MMR vaccine. You know, that's the one you hear about a lot. Oh, your child needs your, the MMR. And um, the problem with that one is it, you know, the MMR vaccine actually contains three vaccines in one for the measles, the mumps, and the rubella. I refuse and will not give that to my son. I think I stopped vaccines for him, too, at about 18 months. Um, and uh, the thing is, the, the, um, oftentimes the, the vaccine they're going to give you is a um, – is a multi-dose vaccine. They come in a big bottle that contains 300 shots. So if you have an option like for the flu shot, you want to take the single flu shot. But that's a whole other subject. I don't believe in the flu shot. Anyone I've ever talked to has ended up feeling worse and still gotten the flu after the vaccine. So, you know, what what are we really doing here? Um, there's also the vaccine for, you know, meningitis. And, you know, a lot of people think that mercury is not is not in our vaccines, but it, it, it is. It's, and that's also in other countries because it's cheap and it's a preservative. Um, and if the vaccine doesn't have mercury, then it will likely have aluminum or formaldehyde as a preservative. And um, aluminum is thought to be, to be more toxic than mercury. And it has been shown to, you know, contribute to Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. There's a, a really good book out there about um, this, and it's by Neil Miller. It's called Aluminum in Vaccines, A Neurological Gamble, um, if anyone's interested in some good reading, if they have the time. Um, so even though there are studies saying there's no link between vaccines and autism, uh, the, I, I don't really buy that um, because many of these studies are sponsored by you know, pharmaceutical companies. So, of course, it's going to be in their best interest to say there is no link. The bottom line is when you put a brain-toxic metal into a developing child's brain, good things are not going to happen. You know what I mean? It's just it's one plus one equals two. So yeah. I would highly encourage parents to um, do their own research and um, – make an educated decision. That's all I've ever told anyone. You know, ultimately everyone's going to have their own opinion about things, but just make sure it's an educated decision. Um, yeah, and it's, it's yeah. crazy because, you know, there, yeah, there's not any studies saying that, oh, vaccines cause autism, but there are studies that say mercury causes brain damage and is toxic to the brain. There are studies that say aluminum is toxic to the brain. So you just kind of have to put one and one together to make two. It's uh, yeah, the I, components in vaccines, the ingredients in vaccines individually have been shown to be toxic to the brain or carcinogenic. So. Yeah, and I think, again, so many um, parents 
um, obviously prevalent in more socioeconomic groups than others. They they just completely trust in Western medicine, and their and and their doctors telling them they have to do these things, and then the school district saying, "Oh, well, your child needs, and we need to have their immunization record." Well, guess what? Having their immunization record does not mean you need to have your child, you know, immunized with all the vaccines. You sign a release. It's not a big deal. You are not required by law yet to have your child, you know, have receive what is it like third the schedule over the course of the first five years of their life. I believe is like thirty vaccines. You are it's, not required. It's thirty. It's thirty-eight vaccines. It's crazy. Oh, okay, thirty-eight. Yeah, as opposed to what eight vaccines you had to get in the 1980s yeah. so what is you know that's and that's a whole another subject what is that all about but um you know just sign a release it's not yeah. a big deal I've yeah de- i've dealt with another, it yeah you do not have to vaccinate your child to get into school this is totally false you know you do not have to vaccinate your child this is not what you want and every state has a vaccine exemption for religious or personal reasons and you can find more information about this on nvic.org slash vaccine-laws.aspx. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, but it, it's sad because a lot of mothers, you know, I've even had like my nanny, she was told she had to give her daughter the Gardasil vaccine, which is horrifying. It's one of the worst vaccines out there with perfectly healthy young women dying within a week or two of getting that vaccine. It's just terrifying. And uh, she was just told that she had to do it. And so she submitted her child uh, to that, unfortunately. And so don't let the, and plus people at the schools make money. They get money for every child that's vaccinated. So the schools have a motivation to get you to vaccinate your child. So don't be fooled by anyone. Don't take anyone's word for it. You have a right to make a choice. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a plethora of information out there. So it's, you know, less and less can people have the excuse, oh, I didn't know. It's all out there, you know. The information is there. And, you know, and then obviously there's other things besides, um, the environmental toxins and vaccines that may contribute to autism. Um, you know, there are um, people that believe there that you know you may carry some sort of gene that um, will show up if you have children. You know, and there is there is an increase. I think if you have one child with autism, there's a fifty percent chance your next child will have autism. But, you know, that whole thing, it's so complex, it's its not really clear what genes are responsible. So um, I, they're still doing a lot of research on that. And, um, you know, I've read other stuff about how we've actually mutated our own genes within our own lifetime because of our exposure to environmental toxins, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah it's really frightening because the, these toxins, they do – play a role in uh, mutating our DNA and then our cells divide and it's uh, it, the DNA is different after the cells divide because so we are in our lifetime changing uh, as a, a species, so to speak. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's a trend that's going to be reversed. But the, you personally, everyone personally can do 
a detoxification program. You know, I, I prefer infrared saunas and nutritional balancing program. The infrared saunas are amazing to, you don't want to be doing that to a child, unfortunately. Um, that's not an option for, you know, young children under like six years old. Um, but once they hit six, you can, you can start doing a sauna if you choose. And, um, but like I said, I, I prefer the nutritional balancing program for detoxification. And, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about diet. Um, how important is diet for a child with autism? This, it still seems to be overlooked by a ton of doctors, um, because they typically don't know much about nutrition. And it's definitely overlooked by schools, you know, treating and teaching autism. When I went to, uh, you know, I had my whole, my daughter go through the whole LAUSD school district and, do all the testing, and then I had, they offered me a couple schools for her to go to uh, that they were going to pay for. And, um, you know, I went to visit these schools, and the first thing I see at one of the schools is they're treating a room full of autistic children. They're giving them milk, which is conventional milk with pesticides and hormones and whatnot, and they were eating apple pie with gluten in it. And I was like, what is what is going on here? I was like, oh, hell no. My child is not going to the school where they're feeding them this garbage. And um, so I, we've elected to, you know, send our child to a private school because fortunately we can afford that. I feel very, very fortunate. Um, but um, so well, can you tell us a little bit about the diet that a child with autism uh, should be eating? I, well, and it's thing, the thing is I believe like a diet or it, – transcends any population it's important for anyone's overall well-being development functioning um but for children with autism um you'll hear about the gfcf diet which is a gluten-free casein-free diet um and children with on the autism spectrum should consider being on the parents should definitely give it a try um and more and more people are uh, familiar with the GFCF diet, but for those who aren't, um, gluten, it's a it's a protein that's found most often in wheat, barley, and rye. Um, and studies have shown that gluten contains a substance called gluteomorphines. And gluten exerphines and um, gliodorphin are also suspects in contributing to autism and other, you know, spectrum disorders and learning disabilities such as, you know, children with ADD and ADHD because of um, the the gluten has a chemistry that's similar to opiates. Um, and it, it's been, there's been some research out there that has shown in urine samples of children with autism to have um, a higher rate of that in their system. And um, experts believe that that could be a central part of the causes and the effects of their development. Um, and then casein, which you'll find in dairy, is something else that should be removed from a, a, a ch child's diet. In fact, um, I try to minimize my my exposure as a non-autistic person, even though I think I'm on the spectrum sometimes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, why, that's why I get them. Um, it, I'm not going to argue with that on that. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to argue with me on that. Um, and it's also been found to when children have that, autistic children have that in their diets, um, it prevents them from improving their condition. Um, there's some, been some research, research out there. Um, Dr. Reichelt in Norway, Dr. Kate at the University of Florida, and others have found that 
um, urine samples from people with autism, PDD, celiac disease, and schizophrenia contain high amounts of casomorphines in the urine. And um, casomorphines is basically the byproduct of the casein that that um, has opiate properties that are similar to morphine, and they believe that it may plug into the same opiate receptor sites in the brain. And this is contributing to behavioral problems seen in autistic children. Um, and, you know, casein is not just in, you know, dairy products such as milk, butter, or cheese, but it's also present in smaller amounts in uh, many substitute dairy products, such as vegetarian cheese and whipped cream topping. So you want to make sure that when you're looking at labels that it's verified gluten-free and casein-free. Yeah, because they use the casein to provide texture in those non-dairy products, ironically. Yeah, and unfortunately, because of budgeting and because so many districts are literally dealing with their 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 budgets are being diverted in other ways, um, they cannot provide the proper diet that any child would would benefit from. And, um, you know, I, and I see the same thing in, in uh, working in skilled nursing facilities with, you know, geriatric patients. So um, you can, if you just, you know, do your research and also, you know, when you're, if your child is in a program and the teacher, the instructional aides that are in there seem unaware of the impact of the things they're feeding them, you know, start bringing in some things, you know, provide your own child's food, you know, and, you know, start educating them about the impact that it, it has, you know, the, and the, the benefits, the pros and cons of it, because there's a lot of people who work in um, education with this group that are not really um, knowledgeable about the impact of the diet on um, the, the children on the, the spectrum disorder. And um, it's just, it's unfortunate, but that's the reality. Um, yeah. yeah, and in my school, the, when my daughter goes to, it's a totally dairy-free school. They don't allow dairy. Uh, the, they recommend the, the the parents that they don't include dairy in their diet because of the, the casomorphins that cause them to have behavioral problems. And I've noticed with my own daughter, when she does eat dairy about, 30 minutes later, she's she's freaking out. Not freaking out, but she's running around and she's jumping up and down on the bed. And, you know, she's kind of acting out now because it's, it's yeah. problematic. And, um, I mean, it's kind of, it is, it's a little bit, you know, um, overwhelming. It's like anyone who's considering any lifestyle changes, you know, removing various things from their diet. Um, but once you see the, positive impact on your child, such as in my nephew, it's well worth it. And it just becomes your lifestyle. Yes, you have to, so you want to minimize exposure to gluten and casein. So you're going to have, unless you as the family, which it, it would, you know, couldn't do anything but benefit you as well. If you as a family decide to adopt a gluten casein free diet, that would obviously be easiest because then you wouldn't have to have to have two sets of you know, cookware and stuff because that's also um, contributes to exposure to those those um, those things that are impacting the population the way it is in terms of their behavior. Um, and you, can do, you can do it step by step too. Like first, remove the dairy, 
and then yeah. kind of see how your child's behavior improves. And, you know, then you can attempt the gluten. And, you know, if you live in a small town where you're not, they don't have a Whole Foods, they don't have a, a health food store with tons of gluten-free options, you can order it online. Uh, there's lots of wonderful resources online to order gluten-free foods and pastas and whatnot. And, um, yeah. you know, you can also more, find uh-huh, – go ahead. More and more people are – are being identified just even with celiac disease, you know, and so there are more and more products available just even at your local grocery store. But the important thing is like I, I, and you know, my nephew, even though he's on a strict gluten and casein free diet, he still consumes too much, you know, too many carbohydrates and, and sugar, you know, because they, they're still buying a lot of, because of the ease and the convenience of buying prepackaged things. And so even if you are, you know, going on a gluten case, just, you know, think over about the overall um, dietary picture. You know, don't just have this tunnel vision, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to, my child's not going to have any gluten in case. And you also want to think about the other things that can, um be in food that can impact your child's behavior, you know, such as, you know, food additives um, and, you know, and things with dye in it and, um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to understand that just because you're going gluten-free, like I'm trying to go gluten-free myself personally, it's kind of hard sometimes, but, you know, you don't want to just go into the, the aisle at Whole Foods and they have a whole aisle of all kinds of gluten-free stuff, but most of it's just packaged garbage. It's processed garbage. A lot of it has MSG in it. You'll see the ingredient called the yeast extract. That's MSG. It's just a food form that the food manufacturers have gotten around having to put the word MSG on the label because they know people don't want that. And so you, you know, you have to be. It's not just about going gluten-free. You want to feed your child whole, unprocessed foods and. You know, you really want to think about it. It's very similar to a paleo diet. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to find more specifics about the gluten-free, casein-free diet, uh, you can find it on gfcfdiet.com. And I think another important point to make is I know it's hard to cook without butter and, um, you know, because that's a dairy product and you really don't want to be using any kind of uh, inflammatory vegetable oils. So you can still eat ghee, which is a clarified butter, um, because that does not contain any casein. So ghee is still on the list and the very healthful, um, you know, the food to cook with and make eggs with or whatever. Um, but, Shauna, are there any, any other dietary recommendations you can give a parent of an autistic child? Um, well, I think the less packaging, the less processing, the more from more farm to table type of eating you do, the better off your child's going to be and the better off you're going to be. Um, and eliminate fast food altogether is what I would say. You want you want your child to be on a whole food diet. And, yeah, it's going to take time. It is not easy. And, and oftentimes we have more success in um, working with uh, changing a child's diet in the school or someone, you know, has, has the option to have their child be seen in private practice. Um, we can we can work on those things um, because and when you are changing your child's diet, um, behavior is a big thing. You're going to have to use um, behavior 
modification techniques, you know, simple things such as first and then, you know, first your child needs, you know, you, you say first, you know, I want you to eat this and then you can have that, you know, first eat the non-preferred and then give them something that you have found on their diet that, you know, that they would like after. That's a big, big thing. It, it, they, they go hand in hand. Um, and I would say it's not something that you're going to see change overnight or in a week. It, it may, you got to give it a good try for at least a month, a full month, you know, it's like any other diet. Um, I'm trying to think. No, I think that's pretty much it. And, you know, there, basically what a parent might want to consider is that um, the GAPS diet, you're familiar with that, right? Yeah, yeah, the gut and psychology syndrome from uh, Natasha Campbell McBride. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think any parent that has a child on autism spectrum disorder should consider reading it. Or if their child has ADD or learning disability, um, she goes into the specifics of um, how best to do the diet and the research behind it. Um, and you can go on gapsdiet.com for more information um, about that. Yeah, it's such an amazing book. When I first read that, you know, I was just kind of interested. I just kept hearing about it. I thought, okay, I just got to read this book already. And I just was completely blown away. She was the first person to go into um, leaky gut syndrome. She was the very first person to identify leaky gut syndrome and how we kind of have a simple description as holes in our gut. And uh, we have all this bacteria in our gut, and it leaks out and gets into a child's brain and causes dysfunction. And that contributes to autism. So she talks about how to heal that gut lining, your intestinal lining, prevent it from leaking, and how how this diet, how gluten and how dairy and other foods exactly affect your child, how they affect your child. It's just an amazing book, and it's a required reading for any parent with a child on the autism spectrum or any kind of developmental disorder. And uh, so, so what about yeast? You know, I've heard some autistic kids have uh, candida problems. Uh, they've got uh, candida albicans, so also called yeast infections, which contribute to leaky gut um, and which, in fact, uh, contributes to toxins that affect their brains. Can you uh, go into a little bit about that? Um, yes. Uh, Dr. William Sean Kansas has found unusually high levels of, of fungal metabolites, which is yeast waste products in the urine of several groups of, you know, what are considered abnormally or atypical functioning individuals, including those with autism. Um, early antibiotic use may actually be the triggering factor for children predisposed to autism. Um, it has also been hypothesized that the candida might aggravate a condition of gut permeability, a.k.a. the leaky gut syndrome, uh, which might let the gluten and casein proteins in the, into the bloodstream before they are broken down. So it may be in part responsible for autistic behaviors. Um, and many parents of children with ADD or ADHD, as well as those with autism, report that treatment for candida does improve their children's behavior and concentration. Um, and Dr. Shaw um, does urinary organic acid tests, and they're performed by, um, I believe it's Great Plains Laboratory. And you can also get, get them done from metametric.com. So, um, okay, yeah, I love metametrics. They're so amazing. 
they have so there, there are like their tests from everything I've been hearing. Their tests are the most advanced, just cutting edge, and pretty much every podcast I listen to, though all the practitioners are using all the tests from Metametrics. So definitely go check that out. And uh, in my research, I've also discovered that detoxing your child from heavy metals they pick up from mothers in their womb, the environment and vaccines is incredibly important to recover from autism. And, uh, you know, you heard me say it, children do inherit their mother's toxicity and nutrient deficiencies. So if you have high mercury or aluminum or low zinc, personally, um, while you're you're conceiving, your child will be born with these same toxicities and deficiencies. You know, my child was on is on a nutritional balancing program to naturally and safely detox from any metals that could be contributing to her autism and correct any nutrient deficiencies. And uh, she's low in zinc, which uh, most children with um, any kind of speech delays or learning delays are, do have low zinc. It's kind of across the board. And I did a hair mineral analysis on her and found that she had high aluminum, uh, which could be from the vaccines, um, which is toxic to the brain. And she had low zinc, which is required for brain development and speech. So, so she, of course, um, had other nutrient deficiencies, you know, even though she's been eating a very healthy organic diet from birth. And, you know, these are common toxicity patterns, high mercury, lead, and aluminum, and nutritional deficiencies like low zinc and iron. Um, these are very common in the autistic population, which pretty much suffer from zinc deficiency across the board. And this is also a, a common hair mineral pattern for children with any kind of delay. You know, because I'm current, I just got my certification in hair mineral analysis, so I've been studying all this stuff, and I'm really big on this program. That's why I got certified. I think it's just the more I learn about it, the more I'm just completely blown away. Um, by this protocol that can help to detox your child and get them healthy. And the program not only detoxes heavy metals, but hundreds of environmental chemicals as well. And, you know, I even got you on the program, Shauna. <laughs> and so what do you think about this method as a part of a treatment program for your child with autism? Um, personally, I say why not? It can't, it, it's only going to do good, not harm. The practicality of it may be difficult, but I can say personally for me and my experience through going through um, having my hair mineral analyzed and going through the rebalancing and detoxing, I've seen um, a significant improvement even for myself. Um, so I, I I think this could definitely be a really good adjunct to the other um, things that parents can be doing for their child. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah and you can find more information about nutritional balancing programs on my site, uh, livetoone110.com. Um, there's a blog post on there called uh, Nutritional Balancing with Hair Mineral Analysis, and I've done uh, about three different uh, podcasts on nutritional balancing with other practitioners and Dr. Lawrence Wilson, who is the um, kind of brought nutritional balancing forward. Um, he's done tons of research on it. And you can also find information on his website, drlwilson.com. And um, there's also some something I want to mention. There's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people using zeolite and other uh, chelators that chelate heavy metals uh, to treat children with autism, and this um, it certainly sounds like a good idea, and, and children do uh, get improvements, 
when they uh, take zeolite or other clays that um, will bind to heavy metals and take them out of the body. Chlorella is also another one that does that. Um, but an important thing to know is that while these uh, chelators do remove heavy metals from the body, they also remove uh, vital minerals. Um, and that's a big problem with people kind of uh, not really understanding uh, that problem behind them because heavy metals and minerals tend to do the same things in the body. They're doing the same functions. They're in the same receptor sites, the same en enzymes. And when you re just remove these heavy metals and there's no minerals to take their place, it throws the body out of balance even further. So it's very important, and this is why I love nutritional balancing science, is that it's very important not to do any kind of detoxification from heavy metals unless you are also doing a targeted mineral supplementation program. Um, it just can throw the body um, out of balance even further. So something to consider. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so what can one do if they suspect their child could be autistic? Like, what are what are the options out there? Um, we we already talked about some of the resources and support support for parents. Um, so there's there's options publicly and privately. Like what I'm talking about is um, just want I just want parents to be aware that they do have special education preschools out there. I didn't know this. I was just trying to get my daughter into a preschool, which a regular preschool wouldn't have really been appropriate. But can you talk a little bit about special education preschools? Um, yes. Yeah, so if you if you suspect, and not just even autistic, suspect any delays in your child, and say you went to regional center, right, your local regional center, whatever they're calling it, like out here in Monterey County, they call it SARC, which is San Andreas Regional Center. So they all, but they're all some sort of reach, you know, like a county program. Um, and I know because their funding has changed, it's like you have to be 50% delayed to get services, whatever. Um, but if you're still suspecting delays in your child and they are getting close to three, you go to your, you know, first go to your pediatrician, right, and um, get a referral for another specialist if, if that's what is deemed necessary. And also go, just go to your, you can go to your local school district office, and I would put it in writing saying that, you know, you have whatever specific concerns about your child, and you would like them evaluated. Um, you want a comprehensive evaluation done. That would include a school psychologist evaluation and speech therapy evaluation and occupational therapy evaluation, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, they'll have, I believe it's um, a 10 to 15-day window to respond, and then they're going to generate an assessment plan. And like you were saying earlier, you want to start this early because it does take a couple months for things to get into place because, um, see, it's, they have 60 days, two months to evaluate your child for, you know, school district services. So you want to get on the ball of that as soon as possible. Um, and once they're evaluated, you know, they will provide you reports, you'll have a meeting, um, and, you know, if you can and if it seems necessary you can um, have someone advocate for you that can help you understand the laws surrounding um, special education, the IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabil Disabilities Education Act, um, to make sure that you're, that you are um, receiving the, the supports that you need for your child yeah, I, once they go into the school system. Yeah. 
I, I had to hire an advocate uh, as well because, you know, my child was, um, you know, I went through the whole process. She was evaluated by the um, LAUSD school district, and um, I took her to my local regional center, which provides additional services. It's like they're two different things. They're two separate entities. One is, I guess, the city and one's the county or something. I'm not sure. And so... You know, and they said, okay, here's what we're going to offer you. And I was like, I'm not happy with that. And a lot of people don't know that you can hire an advocate. They're typically like $125 an hour to advocate on your behalf, go with the meetings with you, uh, go to the meetings with you to try to get you more services, try to get you better services, someone that can advise you on a private education placement where your child's probably going to get much better services. And, um, you know, because the city is just naturally, they're overwhelmed, they're underfunded, and they're going to try to do the least amount possible. You know, they're required to give you a, a free, appropriate public education, which is woefully inadequate for many children, uh, including my daughter. So, you know, you want to, it's good to, and then many of them do work pro bono. You can also get services from the city uh, to use an advocate as well. You don't always have to pay. And some of them, like the one I work with, she does pro bono work. She does work for free. So just, you got to, you got to just take responsibility and do all this research on your own. It's kind of a little learning curve, but it's it's well worth it. Yeah, I would, I would, um, you know, be cautious about who you get as an advocate because you don't want to create an adversarial relationship that's contentious with the school district because, you know, it just it doesn't help. And I, you know, an advocate, there's, there are some really good ones out there, and then there's some who just have no clue. There's no sensibility about them because they themselves don't have children or, you know, they uh you, I would say if you go with an advocate that has had some experience personally with, you know, their own child, that would be the best avenue to go. They're they're much more likely to be practical in terms of, you know, yes, understanding what the law is and understanding what their rights are, but also knowing that, you know, to an extent, our school districts hands are tied. They have budgetary um, constraints, et cetera. And like I said earlier, the parents are 75% of the solution. They cannot rely entirely on the the people working in the schools or people that are working with their child privately to, quote, unquote, fix their child. They're going to give you the tools, just like you give people the tools um, for, you know, living to 110. They're going to give you the tools to help your child function to the best of their ability. Yeah, and I think it's you important know. to note also that, um, you know, there's things out there's um, – options out there to even get the city to pay for a private school. And this is something that I had to dig and and find out. I had to talk to a bunch of different people and find out this information. But um, as soon as I found out something was going on with my daughter, I boom, the next day she was in a private school. Um, it's called Smart Start in Los Angeles. And one of the best schools for speech delays in Los Angeles that, uh, thankfully, Shauna, you recommended and but not everyone has you know is able to get recommendations like that. But um, and so if you are looking for an advocate, like I asked my the private school that my daughter goes to for a good advocate. So maybe you can call some of the, the private schools um, in your area and get the phone number or referral for a really good advocate because they're going to be you know obviously have a, a list there that they use on a regular basis. And um, and I I was fortunate to find out that the private school that she happened to be going to 
also gets three spots per year uh, funded by the city if your child qualifies. So there's lots of little resources. You got to dig, dig, dig for this information. So, Shauna, what is a, an advisable treatment protocol for a child with autism? Like, what are the research and anecdotal evidence showing are the best treatments, environments, et cetera, for a child that's battling this condition? Um, well, you know, it's it's there's no one protocol. Um, each child is different, but obviously they're going to need intense therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, they're going to need to be in a language-based um, program in a, in a classroom. Um, they may be in a um, special education class, or they might actually be able to be in a general education class with um, more support. Um, and it, it, it's just a combination of things. And, you know, on top of that, top of the, it's the, the parents' involvement in terms of, you know, making the necessary changes with, their day-to-day routine, their their diet, when they go to sleep, how much exposure they have to, um, you know, um, technology. All of those things are going to come into play. It's and it's just it's, you can't really compare one child to another. You know, that's and that's a problem I see. Some parents are like, well, Johnny, my friend's child, Johnny gets X, Y, and Z, and I'm only getting you know, Y and Z, why, you know, why is that? And you can't really make that kind of comparison, you know? Um, So, and also the thing is, too, in the time that I worked in the school system, you know, a a lot of parents have this mindset that, you know, more, they need, their child needs, you know, um, a lot of pull-out services, one-on-one services, and that is not the best approach collaboration between disciplines and between home and school is the best treatment protocol. That way there's continuity of skills being taught. You know, I'm not a speech therapist, so it it would behoove me not to work with or collaborate with the speech therapist who is, you know, their focus is on the communication um, aspect of, you know, the child's disorder. Yeah, and I, I find it really interesting that um, occupational therapy helps to d- develop speech as well. Like, occupational therapy is um, like kind of where they're doing physical things, they're um, teaching them motor skills and whatever. Uh, can you explain what exactly is occupational therapy and how it develops speech? Like, like why does a child with autism need occupational therapy? Well, you know, by definition, occupational therapy is um, helping people with disabilities or impairments be able to engage in the occupa- in their occupations and a a child's occupation in you know from 3 to 22 is to be what they're in the role of a student so we help them with you know the difficulties they're having in order so that they can they can uh, meet the challenges of being you know a student who's in that who's in that mode of learning um and we use, you know, everyone has their own bag of tricks and uses a variety of techniques. And um, we are really known for um, dealing specifically with the sensory processing and modulation difficulties that um, children on the spectrum have. Um, but most people, I find, including myself, 
ha- fall somewhere on the bell curve of having, you know, some sort of, you know, sensory difficulty, you know, whether it be processing or modulating. Um, and it's, they go hand in hand, you know. It's not like communication occurs separately from sensory or motor, you know what I mean? They all go together. And um, if a, a, a child with autism would certainly benefit from occupational therapy, at least for a period of time. Um, and like I said earlier, you can't compare what Johnny's getting, you know, to so-and-so. It's very case-specific. And when I, when I do my evaluation and when I make recommendations, it's not because of, you know, budget constraints. I look at the whole picture. I look at where that child's functioning, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, um, and I look at what placement they're going to be in. That's the biggest thing is, like, what's their placement going to be in? What, how, um, what type of learning environment are they going to be in? And um, then that kind of guides what kind of um, services I'm going to be providing. And there usually is a period of time when I'm working with children in the spectrum that I'm going to initially maybe work with them one-on-one, pull out as I'm getting to know them and build a rapport and a relationship with them and kind of tease out what's going on for them specifically, what's really impacting them and and, and uh, impairing their ability to, you know, meet the demands in the school environment, whether they be socially or, or motorically or both. Um, and then as soon as possible, I start trying to integrate my services back into the natural environment and where, where those difficulties are, are showing up, which is in the classroom, which is why I say, you know, pull-out therapy is, is, is okay for a period of time, but at some point you need to be able to reintegrate that back into the, you know, the natural environment. Yeah, that's what I love about the school my daughter's going to is that she's in a classroom with her peers. Um, she's, there's other children there with special education needs, um, but she, there's also normal children, normally functioning children as well, so she gets um, the exposure with her peers that helps her to motivate her to develop her language so that she can communicate with her peers. And um, But anyways, so what are the consequences of, or rather, how important is early intervention? Like how early can a child begin being treated for autism? Um, within months. The earlier they detect autism, the better. Um, I have, when I did regional center, which was the birth of three population, I would work in home with parents, you know, really help provide that, that foundation to prepare them, um, for when they would go into the, the school setting. Um, so I've worked with kids as young as six months old. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of like the consequences, well, it's hard to say, you know, you can't really, you know, what's done is then you can't know what would have happened had you started earlier. But um, I think the longer you wait, the longer it's going to take to um, perhaps get your child to be more, fun- you know, more functioning in society and also to undo however many months or years that you waited, whether it be, you know, changing their diet and removing those toxins and 
um, dealing with, because, um, you know, the digestive issues they've had. Um, and then, you know, children, if they, they come to have a certain expectation, um, whether it be, you know, um, how you deal with their behavior or how you deal with their, their diet, the longer you wait, the longer it's going to take to reverse that. I mean, that's just, that's just common sense. And how yeah. how much will that be? Well, there really is no uh, no way of um, knowing that. It's, but there is obviously, you know, there's going to be consequences for waiting. Yeah, because that, that window from zero to, zero to three years, even zero to five years, is just so critical for their development that so you've got to get your child... Uh, diagnosed and in treatment as quickly as possible because like for me I wasted a whole year that was just a tremendous window of development that my my child could have been experiencing um, had I kind of got on the ball a little earlier and you know snapped out of my denial um, that things weren't quite on track Um, and also I think that you know the I've read that the the language development kind of that window kind of closes at five years old. Um, that the that's kind of when the brain has been pruned or has has changes to where language acquisition after five years old is very difficult. And so I think it's you know that's why you don't want to wait because I've, I've heard of some child, parents they just kind of aren't you know just not really paying attention and they wait to get the child treated after five. And uh, unfortunately, it just kind of be a little bit not not impossible, but a little bit late. Yeah, are, yeah. But in terms of neuroplasticity, you know, research has shown up to ten, twelve years of age. But I think at any oh, point you can make for, you is can, that for language. Is that just for over, language? yeah, overall neuroplasticity. Um, um, so I think at any point that you start is better than not at all. But I've certainly seen the impact of, um, you know, I've gone in home to do um, evaluations of five and six year old children because um, because they had over over time had just confined their child to being confined their child to being just in you know the home because it became so difficult. you see a dramatic difference. It's, it's really sad. It's really, really sad, and um, it, you're, it's it's not helping anyone. You're not, you know, parents want, you know, they're all about. They want to make sure that their, their child is is not crying or uncomfortable, or and so they think by um, kind of creating this surreal environment that that's what's best for their child, but. The big in the big picture, it's not. What if something happens? So you want your child to be able to function, you know, not around other people, strangers. And the only way that's going to happen is if you put them in those situations. Yeah. You can You know, social isolation is is the is um, the worst thing that you can do for your child who is on the spectrum. Uh, and is there hope? Can your child recover from autism? That's a that's a that's a hard question to answer. Um, on the severity. I know, I know Jenny McCarthy thinks you can. Um, I think that you can definitely improve the condition, um, and I've seen that personally with my own nephew. You know, even with your daughter, um, and in the years that I've worked in 
that setting. Um, uh, but is it? Can you cure it? Mm, I I think that um, that's not really a question that I could answer. I haven't yeah. seen a cure, but I think that there are a very good um, treatment approaches for um, children given that diagnosis. Yeah, and I've heard about a lot of mothers that have done the really intensive therapy, done lots of home stuff, uh, you know, caring over what they're doing in school and the home and getting them detox, and they are, their children are able to integrate into normal public schools. So I think yeah. to yeah. a degree you can, uh, your child can improve tremendously to where he could be considered, you know, normal. I hate to use that word, but just could be considered average, your average everyday yeah. child. Absolutely. And but it's also important like do advocate for your child, do everything you can, give them all those opportunities, but also be realistic. Be yeah. realistic. A lot of parents get angry, they're in denial, they think it's other people's fault and they want to make them pay and it's like that's that's not helping anyone, you know. So and because there are um a percentage that do have some sort of cognitive impairment, we cannot change that. If there is some sort of permanent, you know, cognitive impairment, that's not something we can override. We have to, like, when I do an evaluation, I, that's a big part of it. I look, I take into consideration, this is not just when I evaluate children with autism or suspected autism spectrum disorder. I look at what their, um, their cognitive abilities are, and I look at what their skill sets are. Are they commensurate? You know, if they're commensurate, then there may not be a whole lot I can do directly anymore or at that point where they, you know, it's like, okay, well, this is what we can expect and this is the skills they're showing. So if those things are, are um, congruent, then, I, then I've then i done everything that I can, you know. Well, where can someone find more information on how to treat autism effectively? Um, there's a lot of resources. I really like naturalnews.com. Mercola.com is great. Um, I actually get daily newsletters from him. And, in fact, I think the one I just got today was an article about um, the, the link between um, farm-raised salmon and autism and ADHD. Um, there's gapsdiet.com, which I think we mentioned before. Um the NBIC.org, which you, you mentioned, which has up-to-date vaccine information, AutismSpeaks.org, and there's also GreenDivaMom.com, and that was founded by a woman who has a child with autism. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of resources out there. And um, it, when you, if you do go the route of, you know, contacting your local school district, because it's so prevalent, most of them will have that information available to you as well. Okay, right. Well, Shauna, thank you so much for being on the show. I thought we, we did a lot of talking. <laughs> that very long show. But there's, yeah, a that, lot that. Of, <laughs> there's a lot of information that I wanted to convey to the listeners because this is such an important um, you know, topic. It's such a huge issue today with our children, and I wanted to give the listeners as much information about possible detection and treating the, the disorder as possible. So thank you so much for being on the show. That was really amazing. Absolutely, anytime. And I and I, you know, I do know that it's it's very overwhelming. I think you could even 
say that firsthand. Um, when you first come to the realization that your child may not be developing normally, I mean, it's an overwhelming task just as the uh, me as a parent of a quote-unquote typically developing child. It's still overwhelming to keep up on the research to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to ensure my child's growth and development. Um, so I would say don't get discouraged, and um, there are people that are, are out, who are out there who will help you. And um, just make educated decisions. There's no one thing that's going to work. It's usually going to be it's going to be a combination of things. So, um, and I wish this type of uh, information had been available when I first got into my field. And um, so, I think it's really great that you're doing this, and hopefully, um, it will impact even just one person. Well, thank you so much, Shauna. That was just amazing, and uh, just I value your opinion on this so much. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. But again, thank you so much. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> okay, well, everyone, uh, great show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want some more information about um, autism, I don't have any blog posts on autism, but I have lots of information on detoxification and vaccinations on the website on liveto110.com. So definitely go uh, check that out. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>